Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Rob Walker. Rob is Vice President of Decision Management and Analytics with Pega Systems. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it is great to have you on, uh, as is the tradition here on the podcast. Why don't we start out by having you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got involved in analytics and AI? Yeah, thank you. Happy to do so. Yeah, I was I was really attracted to AI very early on. I mean, this is like so in the in the in the 90s when I was you know at, at the university. And I was, you know, doing my computer science studies. The, the specialization I, 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 I chose was AI, which obviously is not quite the AI we have right now. But on the other hand, um, you know, much has actually remained the same. Just the data, I think, has changed uh, a lot. Um, but that was a really fun sort of specialization. And later I got my PhD in AI as well, specifically and after that, I thought this was like we're now talking like 2000 approximately. I was really, uh, you know, getting ready to to do something in, in, in business. So I co-founded uh, a company, a company called KIQ, which was really specializing in what I would say is applied AI. So that was early days. So I was really like applied predictive analytics, but at very high scale around, you know, customer engagement specifically but predicting things like credit risk or customer behavior in general, but at a very large scale, and then applying it in um, in real time. And, and fun fact about that was that we got the venture capital uh, for that company like moments before the 2000 you know, crash. So we just got the money in to start. So that was a really, really good timing. Oh, wow. And then four years later, yeah, that was lucky. Um, and AI wasn't as hot then as it is as it is now. So uh, that was double lucky. We got that going, sold it into into some pretty large companies, and were then acquired four years later by a company called Cordiant. It's a uh, Cupertino company, next next door neighbors with Apple, um, who really used that technology and AI around customer experience and personalization. And then Pegasystems acquired. Accordions for that particular thing as well. So, so it's a long winded thing, um, long winded way of saying that I've been in this space for a very long time and haven't hasn't uh, let many things distract me from um, from using AI in a very practical way with with sort of you know pretty large companies. Mm. And what's your focus at Pega now? So at Pega, it's it's really like uh, we have this thing called you know the, the customer brain or or the customer decision hub, or more a little bit more technical, and it's 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 basically one of the core elements of everything we do, especially around customer engagement. So it's helping us uh, hyper personalize interactions in in lots of different channels, very high volume kind of things, and so think digital presence on the website or mobile, but at the same time. Um, you know, decide on next best actions um, for outbound communications, or if this is a bank, an ATM, every single interaction we're trying to um, to optimize. And, and, and that's not just AI, but AI is a, is a very critical component of that. And are you optimizing it primarily from a, from what perspective, from a financial perspective or... You mentioned customer experience earlier from a, a broader customer experience perspective. How do you think about that? 
Yeah, so the, the optimization function is, is, is basically critical. So I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to especially the business people, but also with the data scientists in, in these large companies so to decide on what their metric is, right? So we do next best action and best typically is a combination of like um, a future value, right? So it's it's not... We're, we're as best practice, we don't try to, for instance, if this is about, you know, a, a web interaction, it's not about, okay, what should we be selling you or what should you be doing? It's really trying to optimize future value of the relationship. And, and that means that, yeah, there are products maybe that you're selling, um, but you can also try to nurture the relationship. You can look at MPS scores that you're trying to optimize. So... We're not specifically prescribing what the best metric is, but it's typically a proxy for future value of that relationship that then every action is trying to optimize. Can you maybe walk us through a more concrete example of that? Um, doesn't have to be a specific customer, but if you've got a specific one in mind, um, just to put that kind of little process that you outlined for us into context. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's take um, let's take a large a large bank, and for instance, and they've been on record like Royal Bank of Scotland or or, or PNC Bank in the in the in the US are, are both of them. There are many other banks that are using this kind of stuff. But what they are doing is basically make sure that at every opportunity they have when they are engaging with a customer in any channel, so that can be sort of an old-fashioned email or even more old-fashioned, you know, printed email. Uh, mm-hmm. But typically, obviously now, you know, the digital channels, it's, it's on, on the web, in the mobile, in the app, everywhere. Every single interaction, they're basically pinging the AI, um, which is then predicting all sorts of behaviors like, like you know, likelihood to of churn, likelihood to, if this is a bank, of, of getting into financial trouble and maybe not repaying a loan. Uh, obviously propensities around a whole host of products or product combinations that the bank would be selling them. And then a bunch of optimization algorithms, but also rules uh, put in by humans to decide on, okay, if that's the case, then contextually right now for this interaction, and that may be one interaction out of billions in, in, a, in a single day, um, this is what we should be doing. And that's sort of the process we're, we're going through. And the this could be, this is an offer. This is what we show on the website. This is a notification on your mobile phone. This is a prompt, app, you know, on the ATM terminal, any of those kind of things. I'm wondering what your, what your take is on kind of where, you know, where we are, I guess, as an industry in this process of applying AI and analytics to the customer experience, right? So, you know, calling it AI is new, but a lot of what you're describing, you know, folks have tried to use predictive analytics uh, for quite some time to, to optimize, you know, the, the next offer or the next step in, in managing a relationship. But then personally, when I think about my relationships with large enterprises, like, uh, like banks, uh, like tele telecom companies, I don't really get the sense that they're optimizing anything about that relationship. It it feels very uh, static, and I wonder, you know, I wonder what the what the barriers are to them, you know, realizing this kind of vision of a more personalized kind of relationship with me as their customer. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that, and that obviously, yeah, many, many do not, and there are, there are. It's amazing, given given the benefits that I think uh, we, but also other companies show. You know, all of this is data driven, so it's not particularly hard to show sort of the delta on some of these on some of these things. And mm-hmm. the reason it's, and and I have to say, it's going fast. So I mean, we certainly don't complain about traction, but it's not going as fast as you would expect because. It's not how these large organizations are are organized. And this has nothing to do with the technology, um, although I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that in a second as well. But it's also just culturally, you know, people in these big banks or big communications companies or other companies are incentivized on a specific part of the business, right? So if you're talking to a bank, in your example, you know, the, the, the people that want to sell you credit cards do their thing, typically pretty old-fashioned as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people that want to sell you mortgages do their thing. And mm-hmm. then there are, you know, 10 other lines of businesses that do their thing. And it all comes together, you know, at the point of contact, but it, it's not a concerted effort. It's not optimized for the bank or for you. It's basically trying to make sense of all sorts of suboptimal, you know, um, um, goals. And that, that's why it feels incoherent and inconsistent. And, mm-hmm. and, and typically then all the different channels are not connected to this one brain in the middle either, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's a lot of ways to make, uh, to make uh, mistakes or to um, you know, get suboptimal results as you are experiencing. And so what are you seeing as the, the main ways that companies are trying to, to dismantle these silos and uh, create better experiences? Yeah, well, they're obviously they're not, you know, these big companies are not charity. So they, I think the big move is there, well, there's twofold. One is they actually have a lot of data, right? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a whole big data discussion, but they have a lot of it now. And it's in much better quality. So if I rewind even like 10 years, you know, when everybody was building, you know, data warehouses and things like that, we're in an incomparably better state mm-hmm. of data. And also the awareness of that, you know, that these big companies have that data um, is it has grown has grown uh, tremendously. And then the question is, can they basically, based on what AI can can do to optimize, you know, these these interactions, do they believe that um, you know there's a tangible result? And we're talking about a lot of money, right? And that I think is the biggest reason for a lot of these big companies pivoting towards this because it's so easy to show once you get it going what the benefits are right both in 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 customer satisfaction and in you know bottom line benefits that it's it it becomes pretty hard to um you know neglect that kind of um, progress can you talk a little bit about the the process a company might take to identify you know where its biggest opportunities lie i imagine for a lot of these companies, there are tons of ways that they could apply analytics and AI to create better outcomes and prioritizing them becomes a bit of a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, no, that be, that, that's true. And that becomes a huge, a huge challenge. What we typically do is to, um, and this is much easier than it was like not that long ago because of all the references and, and these tangible results. Um, so I have a lot easier conversations than I than I had before. Um, but one of the things that I think radically changes, but also really brings the need of AI to the to the forefront, is that if you become like really customer centric and you have these one to one relationships, 
the whole model is changing, right? I mean, a, a traditional bank or large company would have marketing campaigns where obviously, you know, data scientists would create their predictive models and do all their, you know, all their magic and create segments and do targeting. Um, but that's all based on sending out a message for a particular product or offer, right? If you actually put the customer at the center and now you have AI figuring out all of their behaviors that are relevant, you know, from a risk perspective, retention perspective, service, service perspective, as well as sales, now you have maybe a thousand different predictive models and you need to optimize with all of those outputs as, as, as inputs. Now, that's the optimization challenge. Um, that on the one hand gives you a lot better customer satisfaction because it's the relevance will go through the roof and so will bottom line benefits. But it means that a lot of companies or a lot of people in these companies now need to collaborate where they didn't have to before, right? Because the mortgage people would do one thing, the cars people would do a different thing. Now it's all about the customer and AI has now a big vote in what should be done or have very strong opinions about, you know, recommendations that it that it makes about what the next best action would be. So it sounds like the first step is really, uh, at least for for the, the companies that you're working with and the approach that you're taking with them, the first step is really centralizing. Uh, centralizing is maybe not the right word, but um, kind of establishing this customer-centric perspective, which is kind of strange for me to hear in, in some sense, because like, you know, one-to-one marketing, 360 degree marketing, these kinds of, these are 20 plus year old terms. And we just have tools and approaches that we can apply to them now. Um, but it's a little surprising that it's still so hard to get companies to buy into this as an idea. Yeah. Well, partly it's partly, it's still cultural, um, mm-hmm. but, but partly also, honestly, that is because, you know, one-to-one marketing or one-to-one, um, um, interactions may be, you know, not the latest idea. I'm sure that, you know, we heard that maybe in the nineties or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, to actually make it real, you do need AI. So I think that is really the breakthrough of the last 10 years, right? That you can have these self-learning models, adaptive models, all sorts of AI algorithms that these big companies can trust to churn through their data, come up with propensities, learn on the fly, execute contextually, um, and make them a lot of money. I mean, that's not a given, right? And one approach, even now, um, is to, for instance, say, let's ring fans just 1% of your customers, right? And let's see, you know, the difference of this new approach and contrast it with the control group of 99%, just to mm-hmm. make sure that you can trust it. And, you know, that's when you see the the benefits. And they're not like marginal benefits. So, yeah. you know, that sort of propels the project forward. So one of the other topics that uh, I hear come up a lot in the context of enterprise applications of AI is the whole idea of explainability or transparency um, this is coming to the fore, you know, in a bit more of a pointed fashion in uh, Europe uh, in the context of GDPR. And I'm wondering if this is something that you run into uh, with the companies that you're talking to. Yes, and um, that's very important. So we have GDPR sort of on the European side, which is many things, 
But one of the things is that, you know, you need to be able to explain any kind of AI or algorithm that is making meaningful decisions. So that's obviously a lot of wiggle space around what is meaningful, but clearly, mm -hmm. you know, um, you can imagine that this is about, you know, a loan or some big financial stake or risk calculations. That is a meaningful decision. So that's GDPR. That's one thing. Um, but equally, outside uh, Europe as well, using AI as a black box for these, especially for the larger companies, these large enterprise companies, is just too high a risk, right? So they have a whole compliance process around AI, and explainability is 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 very important. And um, for instance, one approach that we're taking, really at the core of the technology is to give controls that are not naive about this, right? You can obviously say, oh, let's insist on transparent AI, which obviously, you know, as everybody will understand uh, clearly, will come at a cost, right? I mean, transparency because is, is, is a cost. Um, it means that the algorithm cannot be as effective as it could otherwise be. So you can't just switch it off and say, oh, you can only do regression models or whatever it is. Um, so we believe that at the core of these AI systems, there needs to be a control that allows much more granular um, control around transparency. Say, for instance, for risk or more regulatory areas, um, you may really insist on, on transparent models, and we'll define that in a moment. Um, whereas maybe in marketing or in image recognition, you are, you know, you can go all out with your, you know, opaque algorithms like deep learning or, you know, XGBoost models or ensemble models, all of these things that are, you know, become much more intractable. Mm -hmm. So so that's a discussion we have a lot around AI. And I think the trust in AI is, is really important to make this whole thing fly. Mm. And you mentioned that you would define transparency. How do you how do you articulate that uh, to customers? Yeah, so there are there are multiple ways. Obviously, the naive way of this is basically tagging the algorithm. I mean, they're obviously, you know, are like deep learning algorithms are are notoriously um, opaque. Um, but more technically, what we do is basically look at the model output, and then reverse engineering it with transparent methods, like for instance, decision trees, and then the complexity of a decision tree that is trying to reverse engineer the model then becomes the size of that decision tree then becomes a proxy for um, transparency or uh, opacity, really. Can you elaborate on that a bit? So you're training arbitrary models independent of kind of this transparency versus opacity metric, and then you're like fitting a decision tree to them. And depending on the complexity of the resulting decision tree, that tells you whether the models should be classified as transparent versus opaque. Did I get that right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's basically that's basically correct. So obviously we don't apply to any you know area, but especially around customer engagement. So what we're doing, we're getting all of these predictions of behavior from neural nets or genetic algorithms or you know more transparent algorithms like decision trees or regression models, whatever the case may be. Some may be may be built by data scientists. Some may be built automatically by the by the AI, um, but basically, once we get all of these um, scores or all of these propensities, we are then going to fit it, as you said, with um, a transparent algorithm, and that in itself 
will give us um, a good view of um, you know how opaque it is. Got it. So it sounds like underneath uh, or kind of embedded in this process is some, I don't know if you, uh, meta optimizer or some model, some auto ML, I guess is, is one way to describe it. That is, um, you've got a, you've got a problem. You're testing a bunch of different models, uh, or training a bunch of different models on this data and you coming up with parameterized models and each of those, you know, you, on the one hand, you know, you've got some model that's the the best model. It may be a model that's not natively transparent. And if that's the case, then you walk back from that model using this process of training a decision tree on it to get like the, you know, the closest transparent model to that model. Yeah. Is that the that, right well, way to think about it. That's that's one way of there are there are actually multiple approaches. So that's one way of doing it. And basically, you say this is the closest transparent model. Mm-hmm. The other way of doing it is saying, well, um, where whenever these two models agree on a particular prediction or whatever or classification or whatever it is, if they agree, we'll just take the the the, the transparent model, and then we only worry about the five percent of cases where they disagree, right? And then we make a choice based on the area we're in. So if we're in a regulatory area where we have to explain this, maybe it's GDPR, maybe it's our own compliance office as in this in these large companies, we'll then actually go either all the way with the transparent model or that's where we switch to um to um you know a more opaque model and take the risk that we don't completely understand how it works, but only for a small percentage of the of the data points. There are a lot of activities, uh, both on a research side as well as in companies that are using AI to try to uh, create explainability out of otherwise opaque uh, algorithms through the kind of the architecture of those algorithms. Are you involved in that as well? Yes. So we're trying to, uh, and honestly, we're also going to see sort of where the market goes, right? We're, We're not wedded to our own uh, technology in this case. So we mm-hmm. currently look at like, you know, reverse engineering these, um, basically these, these, these scoring bins with decision tree algorithm as a good proxy. Um, but, and maybe that's good enough, but there are other algorithms that, um, you know, specifically are trying to reverse engineer these models. And if they work better, um, we'll, use, we'll use those. I think the point for us as sort of an enterprise AI vendor um, for around customer engagement is that we need to give these companies the control over this. Otherwise, um, they can't use it um, to the to the largest extent. And that would be, you know, not a good thing for their customers and obviously for these organizations. Yeah, that, I guess that's an interesting topic in and of itself. Kind of the, there's a seems to be a broader debate around even asking this question, like even, uh, you know, insisting on transparency or explainability for uh, some of these algorithms, uh, there seems to be, at least in the the Twitter echo chamber, a vocal group of folks that um, object to the idea of requiring transparency for algorithms, um, you know, in, in, in some sense, because you know, I guess the argument is that it limits innovation, it provides unreasonable 
constraints. The example that you hear a lot is, hey, we don't know how the brain works, but we make decisions all the time and we're comfortable with that. You know, I'm wondering what your perspective is on kind of that broader argument. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fascinating debate. And and certainly the scientist in me is is definitely with that school. It's mm-hmm. like it's an it's an it's an uh, it's a constraint on AI that, you know, as a rule, if that would actually be le- if we would legislate that away, you know, the opaque algorithms, I think that would be a bad thing. Um, also not sustainable, by the way, because I think it's not just about business benefits. And 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 if we go, you know, maybe zoom in on this a little bit because I do think this is fascinating. I think a lot of people don't seem to realize or don't want to realize that even opaque AI, like the human brain, perhaps, you know, if it makes better decisions, that's not always a good thing just for companies, right? It's also uh, probably a good thing for for humans, right? It may be that you are not getting the loan that you should otherwise get, or it may be that you get diagnosed with something before a human can. Um, and those are good things. So I'm also of the school that we should not, um, you know, rule out um, opaque algorithms. I do, however, believe that certainly in the phase where we're now, where, you know, the greater population needs to gain trust um, in these kind of things, that we need a control mechanism that allows you to allow opaque algorithm where you are comfortable. And even then you need all sorts of bias tests and ethical tests at the end, um, but also be able to restrict it with the same control algorithm uh, or control mechanism in areas that are very heavily regulated. Otherwise, we would never see AI there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, bias and ethical tests. This is something that I've been writing about uh, a bit in my newsletter of late. I'm wondering what uh, what work you've been doing in that area. Yeah, so so we have been, and and I think you can tell from the emphasis on this, you know, on this whole control mechanism. We really believe that for AI to be trusted and accepted and have you know large scale adoption, we do need these kind of control mechanisms. At the same time. Even with these control mechanisms, we have a thing, so we call it revision management, which is the overall sort of police on any of these customer strategies that you put in place, right? It's not just about AI. It's also about performance. It's about all sorts of things. Um, because in our case, the, 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 this, this, this decision layer is used at such a scale interacting with, you know, as I said, billions of interactions that you really need to get it right. So we have this sort of revision manager that makes sure that can, um, you know, that all of the um, QA is, is 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 done. And at that level, we believe the ethical test and bias tests need to be formally incorporated. So you don't have just a, a business officer signing off on the business benefits and an IT manager signing off on the SLAs and all these kind of things. Uh, you should probably also have an ethical officer saying, listen, this 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 is showing a bias that it goes beyond what we as a brand think is is acceptable and you know i think you should do that across the board but especially if you allow some of the more opaque algorithms which i think you should in some areas i think without these tests and not just as a kind of an afterthought but part of your whole qa process i think is critical for for large companies as some of these new technologies and approaches get popularized, one of the things you start to see is 
new job titles emerge uh, that kind of tell you where enterprises are going. So I remember when chief security officer and chief data officer came about and now people are talking about, you know, whether there should be a chief AI officer. Do you see uh, many enterprises now that have a chief ethics officer or do you, or do you see that as something that's emerging? How far are we from something like that? Right. Or where does that yeah. even live within, you know, today's enterprise? Yeah, I think I haven't seen the title yet, but um, but I think it's so it's probably now with the compliance officer or maybe the risk officer, but probably the compliance officer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we will we will definitely see that, especially when um, customers are interacting with AI more directly. Right, a lot of what I'm talking about, they don't necessarily see. Right, they may see a personalized page, but you don't know the magic behind that right but when we see people talking to you know cognitive agents and chatbots and it's very obvious that they are ai i think people will become much more um, sensitive to that and i can imagine yeah a chief ai officer or ethics officer is is something um um we will we will see but definitely when we do these large implementations in this revision process um an an ethical sign-off is part of the process and a, a company can ignore it, but you know that's what you should be putting in. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that the kind of science around making that ethical sign-off, you know, isn't very isn't very well developed at this point. How are companies managing that? How do they know when they should be signing off? What's what kind of process are they are they taking to determine whether? an algorithm is, uh, you know, ethically acceptable. Yeah. So I think that's currently, first of all, that's in its infancy, right? And um, what what we are prescribing is basically looking at like, uh, you know, dist- distributions of outcomes and then comparing it with, um, you know, the, 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 the process, the more transparent process or the human process. Um, but that only works, for instance, for instance, let's assume that your AI is used by a big bank and it's turning racist, right? Can mm-hmm. easily happen. Uh, and obviously, and, and, and this is a discussion I think we're, we're now having a lot with all the big data and also the efficiency of the AI, obviously race, you know, doesn't have to be, you know, in your data or gender or age um, for it, obviously, to you know, to use these concepts. So anyway, that's I think that's a given for this audience. But just to be to be to be precise, with that, if you have an opaque algorithm and you have big data, there is no way that you can tell from the you know the algorithm that it is you know it is it is racist or has some other um, you know weirdness. The thing is, you can only test that if you have a test for it and that may mean if you really don't have some and i'm just making up race as an example Mm -hmm. if you don't actually carry that in your database you cannot you know test the distribution let alone see if it's materially or statistically significantly different from your desired policy which should be obviously uh completely politically correct so Mm. so that presents a little bit of a catch-22 and that i imagine organizations have strived have strived to keep those criteria out of their databases or is that uh, not the case? No. So, yes. So, so for some of these things like, like, you know, age and gender, they probably have it for other purposes. So you can do it for other things. And this could be sexual orientation or political affiliation. All of these things, you probably um, will need a panel 
you know, so you actually have a specific group of rep- representative group of customers that you do ask for these attributes, so you mm-hmm. can check the bias in your algorithm. I, I but I haven't I haven't seen that as part of a formal process um, yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, you mentioned I forgot the terms you use, but you uh, in describing the process for for kind of putting the final stamp of approval on a model. Uh, you talked about some of the testing steps and, you know, all this brings to mind the broader context of scaling and operationalizing AI within the enterprise. What are some of the things that you're seeing with regards to putting these models into production and how do they correlate to are, are we learning things from you know other you know scaling and operationalizing processes like DevOps on the application development side or um, you know how how evolved and mature is this process now? Yeah, I think this is this is sort of more the area of like decision management, right? So it's this it's this model execution layer um, that I think is getting is getting pretty mature, right? But I think that is an important thing. If I look at the breakthroughs in AI, I'm not even thinking so much about the algorithmic sort of progression. And obviously, we have seen you know very cool new algorithms, but you know a lot of it is still is is still the same. I think the two things that have changed the most are the data that's available both to learn but also to apply the AI to in production and the speed, right? So we're not talking about taking uh, like one predictive model into production, even if it's a complex predictive model. I'm talking about thousands of them, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Thousands of them combined with all sorts of financial rules and cutoffs and thresholds and inventory and constraints. All of these things together are used multiple times in a single interaction to continuously predict or decide on this next best action. That's mm-hmm. that's a big scale. If you're a company the size of Sprint or one of the one of the, the big banks like Citibank or Royal Bank of Scotland, that's like such a volume of interaction to apply a thousand predictive models, thousands of rules. And then every single time something changes in the context, like a customer says yes or no, or maybe, or this is too expensive, or clicks or doesn't click, and then you recalculate it, that was just completely impossible just maybe five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think, also makes AI and control over AI um, so important right now. And so are you... Are you seeing companies do specific things to try to uh, wrangle, you know, all of these models that they have in production? Is that something that your tools are doing? Are you seeing them using open source tools? Uh, what do you think the landscape looks like? Now, well, what I'm seeing is, like, I think the open source tools still specifically tend to, you know, the, the mostly I think the data scientists community, right? So they're obviously getting very good at, um, you know, getting you all sorts of algorithms. And I think this honestly, especially on, on, on the big cloud platforms will become much more of a commodity, right? Where they will just have, you know, APIs around predictive modeling and all sorts of things. Um, I think where it gets a lot more complex and challenging is to have um, a, a company in which the business people themselves 
are trained enough and confident enough to build these big customer strategies, looking at evidence, right? And this is a, a very big pivot. So this brings us all the way back to this one-to-one, right? If you figure mm-hmm. out for one person and you have to execute a thousand propensity models and then all of your rules and constraints and all these kind of things to figure out what the next best action is, and then the customer says, yeah, but I think it should be $100 less. I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. And we recalculate if that's acceptable. At that scale, when you have like 50 million customers using all of these different channels, that I think is um, is is the challenge. And I think there's no, I haven't seen any open source uh, thing dealing with that. Mm-hmm. I think where we're, what, what we're looking at, for instance, is is basically abstracting from whatever tool or set of tools are giving us the predictive insight because we think that will become a commodity, right? We complement it with lots of very high-scale self-learning stuff, but I think in the end that becomes a commodity and it's building decisions out of that and make that transparent and do that at the scale so that, you know, these huge companies can use it in every single interaction channel. I think that's um, that's not easy. And I don't think, um, you know, open source will get us there quickly. So just to make sure I understand your perspective on that, the part that you're abstracting away at the level that you're thinking about it is the underlying kind of modeling, model building, and and perhaps even the models themselves. Uh, And then the part where uh, you mentioned the part that you're focused on is the, the decisioning piece, but there, I guess it strikes me that there's a middle piece, which is kind of the scaling and operationalization. Does that exist today? Is that something that we're still as an industry building and figuring out uh, in your perspective or, you know, where do you, how do you see that evolving? No, I think, I think, I think we're, we're, we're there. Certainly we are doing that for these okay. large companies, but we are, we are consuming, and this is one of the challenges, right? We are consuming these predictive models. If somebody loves, you know, R or, you know, one of the modeling, one of the modeling tools, uh, we would consume that. There is an there's an exchange format called PMML that you can use to sort of help standardize that. The thing is, if you want to have AI sort of at the forefront of customer engagement, you need to be able to execute these model contextually. Contextually, so we're not we're no longer you know at, at in 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 an area or a time where we would you know have big batch jobs and all of these models would put scores in databases and then we'd retrieve the scores. So now we know the likelihood you're going to buy this is you know 0.8 and the risk is 0.2 because we need to execute them contextually like we do in a really human conversation. So the models need to be executed contextually and that I think is much more of the technical challenge than getting the models in the first place. Although mm-hmm. at the moment we still feel like you know there's there's a lot of model laboratories out there, right? These tools where data scientists can have a hundred different algorithms to build Mm -hmm. whatever they want, which is cool, and we will consume that. But a model factory to actually give the business, you know, the throughputs and the volume of models that they need, probably not there yet, but I think that will become a commodity. Mm. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Well, Rob, to wrap up, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? I think we 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 touched on a lot. We so, covered uh, a lot of ground, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, it's been great uh, getting to chat with you about this stuff. There is certainly a lot of interesting things happening as enterprises wrap their arms around AI. 
Um, but also there's, you know, they've, you know, while AI is kind of the hot new term, there's, you know, they've certainly been working on analytics, decision management, predictive stuff for quite a while. And it's interesting to see how these things co-evolve together. So thank you for taking some time to share your perspective with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Rob or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 127. Thanks again to Rob and Pegasystems for sponsoring this show. And of course, make sure you head on over to pegaworld.com to learn more about the conference and be sure to use the code PW18TWIML for 150 off of registration. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.